Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Well, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, who, who had a little bit of turkey to eat today? Anyone? There's a few for sure. My, uh, my wife said, you know, turkey is so good. Why don't we eat it more often during the year? Uh, especially when you get it for like 40 cents a pound, right? Uh, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We did. Uh, this summer, some of you know that our daughter was pregnant with a little girl. Uh, there were several complications along the way numerous doctor's appointments. Uh, we were told there were at least five major issues with the baby uh, in vitro, so before the baby was born. Um, the doctors were very concerned. They gave us a long list of things that it could be. And when little Nora Joy was born on July 5th, she weighed three pounds and 11 ounces but she was so beautiful and so perfect that the doctors were in shock. There were 12 doctors in the room uh, because they were so concerned about her. And she is now about 11 pounds, doing great, just healthy as can be. So thank you for your prayers. We give God praise. My, uh, my wife Pamela and I just got back from uh, from the southern North Carolina area, the mountain area, were able to spend the week with our family and uh, to hold that little miracle girl and to just celebrate her. And you can imagine around the Thanksgiving table, nobody wondered what we were gonna give thanks for. Uh, we sort of take, take, took turns holding the little miracle and uh, giving God praise and thanks for his goodness. I wanna talk tonight about to me, what is maybe one of the most important topics that I've ever preached on. It is one of the topics that maybe is so familiar to us that we miss the power of it. Uh, sometimes the most familiar parts of the Bible, it's very easy to overlook them. Uh, I want to talk tonight about a tale of two kings. One of the kings is in the Old Testament. Uh, we read about him in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, and he's a king that, uh, if you're going to describe him, you would say he really stood on the top of the world. Uh, he was a powerful king. Uh, Daniel writes about him in Daniel chapter 4, as I mentioned, and he really was a king that was on top of the world. Uh, he had riches. He had power. Uh, he was the ruler of Babylon. Uh, Babylon is such a familiar biblical term that it almost is used to mean a culture of worldliness. Some equate Babylon even to the Tower of Babel uh, and a picture of man endeavoring to work his way up to God. Uh, and one of the great rulers of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar II. Uh, Daniel writes about him. And he was the man that I would say, he was the man who stood at the top of the world. He was the man who stood at the top of the world. We celebrate people that are on top. You know, we have a list of the top 10, uh, the, the top 10 best looking people in the world. You know, we put on a magazine at the grocery store and people buy thousands of copies. Uh, the top 10 TV shows, the top 10 movies, the top 10, you know, uh, athletes of all time, ESPN will celebrate things like that. 
Sports Illustrated and others will celebrate things like that. We like to talk about who is at the top of the heap. Well, Nebuchadnezzar stood at the top of the world. And if you looked at the business world today, one person that you would say is probably, if he isn't at the top, he's close, would be Jeff Bezos, uh, the owner of Amazon. Uh, do, you, do any of you remember when Amazon just sold books uh, and you used to have to use your telephone line to get online and you would want to go online and somebody was on the phone in another room and you had to get them off and uh, they just sold books and his business plan initially let his investors know that they were going to lose money every year for several years. Then they would begin to make money and boy have they made money. Jeff Bezos, many people would say, sits at the top of the financial world. Some would say maybe Oprah Winfrey sits at the top of the entertainment world with a production company. Certainly in the sports world, a lot of people would say LeBron James. I uh, just noticed that they have a New Jersey that's come out, this half Cleveland and half uh, L.A. So he now is, you know, getting into the world of movie production and TV production and all of that. Some would say in the economic world for many years that Warren Buffett has been at the top of the world. In the world of inventions and science, uh, we learned this week that Elon Musk is determined to go to Mars. We look at these people as being at the top of the world. But in ancient Babylon, there was no doubt about it, Nebuchadnezzar was at the top of the world. You know, Daniel 4, as you look at the story, and it's a long chapter, so I'm not going to read it all to you, but I sort of want to, I want to tell some of the story to you. It might be familiar to you. But Nebuchadnezzar, at the beginning of uh, Daniel 4, says that he was at ease in his house, prospering in his palace. He said he saw a dream that made him afraid. He said, I laid in bed and I had these visions that alarmed me, and I called the wise men of Babylon to come to interpret the dream. Uh, it sounds a bit familiar to the story of Pharaoh and Joseph, and he called them to interpret the dream. He called the magicians, enchanters, the, the uh, Chaldeans, the astrologers, and he told them this dream that he had. And in the dream, he saw a tree, a large tree in the middle of the earth, and it was the highest tree of all the trees. The tree grew, it became strong, and the top of it reached to heaven, which sounds like the Tower of Babel, the intention of the Tower of Babel. And it was visible through the whole earth. The leaves were beautiful, and all the birds came to feed and to rest and to get shelter under that tree. And then he saw someone appear, and they said, chop the tree down and buckle it to the ground with iron and destroy it. And then he said, uh, this person said, leave it there and let this tree, which represents a person, let the mind of this person be changed and let it become like an animal. Let it be like an animal that wallers in the ground, in the dirt. So, Nebuchadnezzar, none of his enchanters can interpret the dream, so he called on Daniel. Belteshazzar uh, was his Babylonian name. And he called on Daniel to interpret, and Daniel came. And he said, I know, Daniel, you're going to be able to, to interpret this. Uh, the way Nebuchadnezzar put it, he said, the spirit of the gods are with you. You'll be able to interpret it. 
So Daniel was very hesitant. He said, my concern about this interpretation is that I hope what I'm seeing is not for you, but for someone else. Because he said, what I see is that the tree represents you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're over, you're the greatest leader in the world. People look to you, they, they follow after you, they come to you, they, they're amazed at your greatness. But someone from heaven is going to come and say, chop him down and let him be like the animals of the earth. And uh, you'll be driven, this is, this is what the prophecy said, you'll be driven from among men, your dwelling will be with the beast of the field, you'll be made to eat grass like an ox, and you'll be wet with the dew of heaven, and for periods of time, you will be humbled. You will be humbled. So as the story goes on, Nebuchadnezzar went through a humiliation. The greatest man, or when it came to power in that age, went through the greatest humiliation, this leader of Babylon. And at the end of 12 months, uh, he was walking on the roof of his palace in Babylon. And the king answered, and just before he was humbled, he said this, Is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my own majesty? So you see, this great Nebuchadnezzar, he looked at his kingdom and he said, look at this kingdom. I have built it and I built it for the glory of my own majesty. That's what you would call self-exaltation. Am I right? Uh, you know, one of the phrases that I will catch some young people using today, and I've challenged them a little bit in classes and courses that I teach, is I'm so proud of myself. Have you heard that? Oh, I just did this. I'm so proud of myself. You know, I used to look at that and I thought, you know, that's, that seems like a strange kind of thing to say, I'm so proud of myself. The Bible says, let another praise you, not your own lips. But then I began to think about it. I thought, well, maybe, maybe we're a little lacking with affirmation in our culture. Uh, maybe if we look for more opportunities to see people doing things well and affirming them, maybe we would have fewer people saying, I'm so proud of myself. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was proud of himself. Uh, this was all about self-exaltation. But God allowed him to be humbled in an incredible way. Maybe the man that went to the highest point in his day in power went to the lowest point in humility. But then in the middle of the humility, something began to change. It was like the prodigal son when the lights went off for him, when he was eating from the pig trough and he realized where he was and what he had done. Something changed and Nebuchadnezzar began to see something of the greatness of God in the lowest place he'd ever been in his life. So his greatest revelation of God came at the lowest moment in his life. And the Bible tells us that then, at the end of days, Nebuchadnezzar says this, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason, my mind returned to me and I blessed the Most High God. And I praised and honored the one who lives forever. For his, listen to this, listen to these praises. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. In other words, compared to God, we are what? Nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven 
and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stop his hand or say to him, what have you done? So God restored Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end, he said, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all, Listen to this, the end of the chapter. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And listen to this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Look at someone next to you and say, God knows how to humble people. Go ahead. He knows how to humble people. And the Bible says that we're supposed to learn how to humble ourselves. You know, humble yourself, the Bible says. To live humbly. But how many of you have learned, if you don't humble yourself, God knows how to humble you? See, God knows all about not only the outside of our hearts, but the inside of our hopes and our dreams and our wishes. And He knows... He knows what to add to our lives, and he knows what to take away from our lives. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I know we, we use that in a chorus, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. I remember when that first came up, I'm like, I don't know that I want to sing that in a chorus. I don't know that I want to celebrate that he takes away. Do you know what I mean? It's, it can be challenging to think about that. And I think we, we are sometimes at places in our lives where we may not yet be ready to just say, this is, this is a good thing. And we may not recognize it right away, that it is a good thing. But so often, so often, it is. Babylon, great city of Babylon, grandiose walls, some say 300 feet thick in some places. 300 feet high, 25 feet thick, 250 towers in the city of Babylon, estimated at 450 feet, and a golden image, a bale in that city. And then the famous hanging gardens of Babylon uh, that were referred to as an ancient wonder of the world. But look again with me at what, what Nebuchadnezzar said. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king said, is not this the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I'm pretty sure that this is the most prideful statement in the Bible. I'm pretty sure when it, you talk about being full of yourself, that this is probably the epitome or close to it in the Bible. When it comes to man lifting himself up and saying, look at me, look at what all, all I've done, and just saying, you know, look at how great I am. This is the epitome in the Bible. And guess what? God put it in there. He put it in there so that you and I could, so that it could be read then, but so that you and I could even read it today, amen? It's for us. It's for then, but it's for today. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training so that the follower of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Scripture is so valuable, so important, so necessary to us. And in the Old Testament, we read about Nebuchadnezzar, this, this powerful king, so full of power, so full of wealth, so full of, full of authority, so full of influence, and riches, 
And yet, destined to experience that the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And he fell. He fell a long distance, and God allowed him to fall. But remember, his greatest revelation of God came at the lowest point of his life. When God allowed everything to be taken away from him. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar, who saw himself as everything, to become nothing. The scripture says without him we can do what? Nothing. I believe one of maybe the most helpful statements or set of statements to make often for us is to the Lord. Jesus, without you I'm nothing. Without you I'm empty. Without you I'm lost. Without you, I'm lost. Without you, I'm nothing. Without you, I'm empty. But through you, I can do all things. Through you, because of you. You know, the Apostle Paul, I like to call him the prince of the prepositional phrase. Because when you read the New Testament, he's all about through this and by this and for this and because of this and in this. And he's into depth. He's the prince of the prepositional phrase. But he reminded us that our fullness is found in Jesus, not in this world alone, not in our riches, not in our influence, not in our power, but in Jesus himself. So that leads us to a second king, another kind of king, the king that the New Testament teaches us about. You know, Jesus invited people to learn of him. To watch how he did life. From the water baptism of Jesus, that was really in many ways, people look at that as almost the inauguration of Jesus in the ministry. When he was water baptized, and then he began his earthly ministry. And he did it as an example for you and me. If our sin issue was the one issue alone, God could have allowed Jesus to come in a more mature form, take care of sin, on the cross, deal with it, and be done with it once and for all. But he also allowed him to live life for us, to fill four gospels up with stories, sayings, works that he did, ways that he treated people. And he said, learn of me, because I'm meek and lowly, and you'll find rest for your souls. You know, there was a statement that Isaiah made, and he said, he asked the question, where does God dwell? Where does God dwell? He said, oh, he dwells in a high and lofty and wonderful place. But he also dwells among the lowly, the hurting, the poor, the outcast, the struggling. God is great, but through Jesus, God became what? Humble. Humble. Philippians 2 tells us that when Jesus came to this earth, he humbled himself. His posture, and I don't know about you, but if I had planned the incarnation out, I think I might have added some superhuman powers, uh, maybe have Jesus arrive as a superhero, you know? And he's, if he's going to save us, I mean, come on, you know, superheroes save people. Uh, you know, the cape, the, you know, everything. Uh, that he would arrive and he'd have all these superhuman powers because we need saving, we need rescuing. And we live in a world that's fascinated with superheroes. Uh, there's so much of it right now. But think of it. When God chose to save those that needed rescuing, he didn't choose a high place. He didn't choose a throne. He didn't choose a mountaintop. 
He chose an animal feeding trough, a manger, a place where animals went to feed. Now, I don't, you know, when I think about a place where animals go to feed, I'm not thinking of the Ritz, you know, Carlton. Uh, I'm not thinking of a fancy hotel. I'm thinking of a rough place. Uh, Michael Card, in some of his writings on the, that, the incarnation, he said the beauty of it was the grime and the glory of the manger. There was something so human, so simple, so plain about it, but something so glorious. And you know the song we sing, Away in a Manger? There really was a way in a manger. There was a way that God chose to come. Not the way of pride, but the way of humility. Not the way of power, but the way of service. Not the way of force, but the way of invitation. Not the way of of, uh, displays of authority, but displays of humility. That's how he came to win us. Um, I don't know how many of you went shopping on Black Friday. Maybe you did it on your computer. Maybe you avoided it altogether. Some of you, maybe you braved those groups of people out there and you prayed hard before you went out there. I still remember years ago, uh, there was a little electronic device that I wanted. My daughter was 15 years old. We were living in Boston. I got my family up like at 4 a.m. We drove to New Hampshire because in New Hampshire, no taxes, Pastor Dan. You know, so we get up there, and my daughter, Kara, was probably 15, 15 years old. And I said, Kara, Best Buy is jam-packed. So here's the item I want. Would you go get in line, and I'm going to go park, and then I'll come get in line with you. That way I'm sure to get one of these devices. And I go in, and somebody said, there's a young lady over here that just passed out. <laughs> so I thought, oh, no. I got my kids up so early, my 15-year-old passes out. So I go over, I'm giving her, I brought some fruit in, gave her like a banana, some water, and I look up at the attendees like, don't worry, I got your device right here, I'm holding it for you. (laughs) She will never let me live that down. You know, we still talk about that. But what would it be like, opening door, Black Friday, you're at Best Buy or some big store, Walmart or whatever, and somebody's ahead of you and they say, wait a minute, you first. Go right ahead. (laughs) I haven't seen any news stories on that. Have you? (laughs) You first. After you. Oh, no. Next one. After you. No. I'm just here to hold the door. (laughs) That sounds a little preposterous, I know. But do you notice in our world today how when you even do little things like that, people will look at you like, thank you. Thank you. Because we live in a world that's so focused on me what I want, what I need, where I want to be, how quickly I need to be there, how busy I am. Because, you know, all my busy stuff is important busy stuff. I don't know about your busy stuff, but mine's really important. And probably my busy stuff is more important than yours, right? You know, we we get in that mode. We live in a world like that. And yet Jesus came in such a humble way. There was a way in a manger. There was a way in how he came. Not only are the words of the Bible powerful, The ways of the Bible are powerful. Not only are the words of Jesus great and so needed by us, but the ways of Jesus are so great and so needed by us. And you know what? We can live and we can miss something very important. All because of what? Pride. Pride. Uh, 
I told my wife, I said, you know, it's almost like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Pride. You know, there, Paul talked about how there's two of me. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Sort of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Pride. And we deal with that wrestling within our hearts. You know, me first, no, you first, no, me first, no, no, you first, you first. Pride was Satan's first lie. You know, God knows why he doesn't want you to eat of that tree, because when you do, you're going to be like him. You're going to be like him. The temptation of pride began. You know what pride does? It makes you compete with people instead of commune with people. Pride is, is a, it's a really evil thing. I'm not talking about confidence, but I'm talking about arrogance. Pride makes you see only what others should be doing for you, not what you could be doing for them. But do you know what? Pride always precipitates a fall of some kind in our lives. Pride comes before some kind of a fall. In other words, God deals with pride. He deals with it. The longer I follow Christ, the more pride I discover in my life. I thought it was going to be the reverse. I, you know, Pastor Dan, I thought the longer I follow Jesus, it's going to, pride's going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. But the longer I follow him, the more I'm aware of how tempted I am in those areas of life and how, how the enemy wants me to live a life that's just about me. I'm never satisfied, self-focused. You know, it, Andrew Murray said, there is nothing so natural to man, nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult, nothing so dangerous as pride. As pride. But here's the big idea of this message. God humbles those who exalt themselves and he exalts those who humble themselves. God humbles those who exalt themselves, but he exalts those who humble themselves. So such a central component to Christian faith is the way of humility. It's it's one of the things that sets us apart in the world in which we live. That we choose to not live a me-first life. And you might say, well, it's a Jesus-first life. Yes, but you know what Jesus would say? Yeah, but when you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. When you defer to other people in love, oh, I'm receiving that. You don't have to just stand and, well, while your need goes goes unmet, I'm just going to pray and make it all about Jesus. Jesus would say, yeah, pray, but also do something to help this person. Serve them. Live out your prayer. I still remember my, um, my first preaching experience at my father-in-law's church. I was probably 24 years old, and you know, this is a big deal. My father-in-law's a pastor, I'm a new young pastor, youth pastor, and I believe it was over the holidays, it was. And he said, uh, he said Robert, you know, when you come, he called me, he said, I'd like you to preach the Sunday night after Christmas. And I said, oh, really? He said, yes. I said, sure, I'd love to do that. So that you have to realize this was a big deal. For me, it was like speaking at, you know, Madison Square Garden, you know, <laughs> speaking for my father-in-law's church, a full-fledged Sunday night sermon. Well, I came out, and, you know, we, we used to sit on the platform 
with, with the service. So, you know, I have this new sport jacket on that my wife had got me. And, you know, he and I'm with, I'm with my father-in-law. There's a little room to the side in the back. And the wood grain is sort of a hidden door that you go in, sort of the ready room, like one you have here, to go in and get ready for the service. So the pastor's there, speakers are there. And he and I come out. My father-in-law is bald. When we come out, the worship guitarist turns and the guitar hits his head. So we're sitting on the platform. I'm sitting next to my father-in-law trying to look spiritual. And uh, I look and Pamela, just like she is right now, she's sitting and she, she goes, like Robert, you know, Robert. And I look, what? And she points at her head. I'm like, oh, is my, does my hair look bad? You know? And she's like, no, dad. And I look over at my father-in-law and here's a big bunch of blood right on his eyebrow, just getting ready to drop on his cheek. And I leaned over and said, Dad, I said, that guitar, when it hits you, you, you're bleeding. So he goes out, he slips out that little secret door on the side, you know, goes and, you know, wipes it off, takes care of it, he comes back out. So I'm like, all right, I got to relax here. I got to, you know, get comfortable, get into praise and worship. And so I thought, um, how are you supposed to cross your legs when you sit on a platform? And I didn't know if I'm supposed to do them like this or, you know, like over my knee or whatever. So I cross my legs and I sort of get a little more comfortable. And I look at Pamela. She's like, and I'm like, what? And she points at her leg. And I look. And, you know, I wasn't as conscious about my wardrobe in those days as now. And there was a hole about this big in my black socks that had worked its way up to the front of my very white leg. So it probably looked like a golf ball in the front of my leg. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what in the, you know, I'm trying to, you know, pull my pants down and worship God, you know, and trying to do all that and trying, I'm like, what in the world am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. So, so it occurred to me, I'm sitting on the left side. I thought, well, if there's a hidden door on the right side, then there must be one on the left side. So I go over and I start feeling the wall. You know, for the indentation, you know, where's the door? I've got to, you know, pull the door off. And I could not find it for the life of me. So finally, I go over to the other side, and I went in that door, got my socks turned around. And then I go back, and I'm like, oh, I, you know, I don't know what's going Hopefully, I don't have heart failure before the end of the service. You know? And I'm, I'm sitting down. I'm trying to get relaxed and all that. And then I'm, I know I'm going to preach in just a few minutes, and I, I, I look at Pam. I almost didn't want to look at her, but I looked at her. She's like, Robert. And, and I'm, I'm like, what? And I'm, by this time, I'm just worshiping the Lord, and I'm relaxing. And she points to her arm. And I look over, and the, the new sports jacket that she got me, I'd forgotten to take the tag. <laughs> the tag off of the sleeve. And I mean, all that stuff had happened. I had not even had people open their Bibles yet, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, but I have to tell you, it's funny now. We've laughed about it so many times. It was not funny that night at all. <laughs> not to me. Not to me. So I had to, like, pull that off and, you know. So the Lord knows how to humble us, right? <laughs> In all kinds of ways, when we get so full of our thoughts of what we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to be and how it's supposed to look and this and that. One person that read Pride really well 
with C.S. Lewis. Look at what he said. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And pride is essentially competitive. By its very nature, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Jesus did not come with the mission of putting himself above everyone else. He came with the mission of being a servant to all. He did just the opposite. He did the paradox. He looked for ways to serve. So then who is the most successful person of them all? Who's the, in the eyes of God, the most successful person of them all? Chuck Swindoll said something that I read years back, and I shuddered when I read it. He said, for God to do an impossible work, he must take an impossible person and crush them. For God to do an impossible work, he must take an impossible person and crush them. Crush the pride out of them so that they're surrendered and yielded to him. You'll either humble yourself or be humble because God is committed to getting pride out of our system. He's committed to getting us to live out of something much different than pride, something called the love of God. It's what he desires. You know, probably when I say disciple, strong-headed, independent, at times belligerent, who do you think of? Peter. Peter. He sort of had his own way of doing things. But do you know later on when Peter had gone through denying Christ and all the brokenness over that and all the hurt and pain and the regret, he came back and he wrote First and Second Peter. And in First Peter, he said, to, he said this. Think about how Peter lived. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives what? grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So do you know the hardest work you and I have to do in the Christian walk is humble ourselves? Is humble ourselves. Put God first, put others first. Humble ourselves. Humility. Humility over and over again in our lives. But there are a couple of dangers that we fall into. And I've done this couple of dangers. One is hiding our humiliations. Hiding our humiliations. You know, when, when I first had a, a vocal challenge years ago, there was a period of time that I just tried to sort of push my way through it, not talk to anybody about it. Just assume that it wasn't there. And that was the season when I was saying, why God? Why this challenge? And, but God had to get me more and more to place where I said, what? What is it you're wanting to do through this, God? Because ultimately, people are praying for me. My family's praying for me. Ultimately, you're in charge. So I choose to trust you with this, God. Where are we going with this? 
Where are we going? And the other is the living in the age of self-exaltation. Do you think there's a little bit of self-exaltation in some forms of social media? Do you think a new generation of millennials and Gen Z feel a pressure to exalt their persona day after day after day. Look at me, look at the life I live, look at where I'm going, look at how much fun I'm having, look at how successful I am all the time. And it's creating the most anxious generation that America's ever produced. Riddled with so many challenges in their lives. Wonderful, I'm very hopeful about the generation, but I'm also very concerned because of the expectations that we're putting over them. This generation needs to learn about humility and the beauty of the beauty of humility, the freedom of humility. If I hear another speaker introduced as the man, the myth, the legend, I think I'm going to throw up. I'm like, you know, the human being, <laughs> the sinner, just like all of us, the person desperately in need of God, like you and me. Study the humility of Jesus. He said, watch the way I do what I do. I'm meek and lowly. Come unto me, all you that labor are heavy laden. You'll find rest for your souls. You say, but, but what about that challenge that I'm dealing with that's so humiliating and I can't understand why God would allow it, why God would allow something like this to happen to me, something like this to be said to me, something like this to be done to me. Why, why, why? And we get so filled up with that. And I would never suppose to think that I know what you're walking through because it could be very unique and very challenging. And you may be sitting there saying, you know, you're, it's easy to preach about this, but it's a different thing to live through what I'm living through right now. And I do not minimize that at all. But I would say again and again, my experience has been every time I get to that place, I say, God, why this? Why this? Why that? Why this? It comes back to trust. It comes back to trust and saying, God, can you turn the humiliation into humility? Can you turn the humiliation into humility? And how do we do that? Well, in a moment, we're going to open these altars. And maybe it's been a while since you just came and prayed a humble prayer. Jesus talked and said, oh, there was this moment where there was a, a sinner and a publican. And they both came for prayer and the publican said, oh, God, I thank you I'm not sinful like that person next to me. And Jesus said, which? And the other said, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Jesus said, which one do you think left from that place whole? The one who was comparing himself or the one who said, God, I just desperately need you with everything in me. Forget the competition. I need you. And I submit myself to you under the mighty hand of God, whatever I'm going through. And see, this is the beautiful thing. When you begin to follow Jesus Christ, it begins with humility. You don't have to work yourself up to some great spiritual state. You come where you are. God receives you as you are. God reminds me over and over again that remember, remember, remember when you were that 15-year-old who opened his heart to me at Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and said, I just need Jesus. Go back there every now and then. Go back there every now and then. Take me back to the place where I first believe, where I first receive Jesus. Take me back to the place of first love. It's good for couples to talk about the early stages of their marriage 
and their dating and their, their love for one another. It's good for us to do that with Jesus. Say, Lord, take me back to that place. So humility. That's prayer, but it's also an attitude of the heart. Humility is an attitude of the heart and mind. You might say, but, but am I pride? Is, is pride what I'm dealing with? And a, a little while back, I actually found a pride test that somebody drew up. Somebody that worked with a lot of people dealing with challenges in their lives. And they said, well, if you struggle with these, you probably struggle with pride. And there's a long list. I'm just going to share a few. Do you look down on those who are less educated, less affluent, less refined, or less successful than you? Do you ever have a judgmental spirit toward those who don't make the same lifestyle choices that you do? Uh, the way they dress, the way they go to school, the way they raise their kids. Are you quick to find fault with others and to verbalize these thoughts to others? Do you frequently correct and criticize your spouse, your leaders, other people in places of leadership? Do you spend undue time focused and overwhelmed with your physical appearance? Are you proud of the schedule you keep? Do you tell everybody you're a perfectionist? Do you try to control everything, everybody? Are you argumentative? And I, I, I just got a little way through that list and I was ready to close the page. <laughs> because you know what it did? It made me painfully aware of how much pride wants me and to dominate me in my life. Well, at the end of days, here's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He is able to humble. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord presenting ourselves before him and remembering how much we need him. Do you know how freeing it is to do that? To say, God, I'm nothing without you. I'm lost without you. I'm empty without you. I come again today and tell you that that is where I find myself. So there's some of you that are here that say, you know, I needed this tonight. I needed to be reminded that the primary call of the Christian faith is one of humility of humility, that what God's not looking for is saying, hey, how great a Christian can you turn yourself into? How spiritual can you seem to be to everyone? No, it's all about humility, loving God, and loving people, and letting him change you and your world. God wants to do that. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to open these altars. And maybe you haven't done this in a while. I'm going to invite you to come and to find a place just to kneel, to take a few minutes just to kneel and to do simply this, to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. To say, God, I am nothing without you. I come before you. Pamela and I were at a church service the other week and the altars were open. And they, they filled up and then the pastor came up and he said, he said, there's an elephant in the room I want to address. And he said, it's this. 90% of the people at the altar are women. And he said, I know there are men here that you know you need to humble yourself before God. Don't let, don't let expectations keep you from humility. Don't let ego keep you from humility. Don't let pride, the central 
core of every sin. If you follow every sin in life, it ultimately goes to pride. It ends up there. That's the root of it. It's the root of it all. And Jesus came to deal with that, not only on the cross, and that's the most powerful because he washed the power of it away and overcame it, but by living the way he lived in humility with other people, by deferring, by loving, by showing humility in the way he honored his Father. And he calls us to that tonight. The best place to get a revelation of who God is in a fresh way is in a place humbling yourself before God. Nebuchadnezzar found his most vivid vision of God at his lowest place in his life. We place ourselves there every day. If we don't place ourselves every day, God out of his love will allow things to occur that will place us there. And we'll thank him. He can do it either way. But he calls us to learn the practice of humility. So let's all stand together. And I'm going to invite you just before we open these altars up to think about the greatness of God. Think about a God who would choose to rescue a world so caught in sin, so caught in self and selfishness, self-exaltation, trying to make something out of us instead of finding the Jesus that said, if you try to find your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose it for my sake, you're going to find it. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and you'll be exalted in due time. As you come, I invite you in your heart and mind to say, Jesus, I'm nothing without you. Jesus, I'm lost without you. Jesus, I am empty without you. Would you come? Would you come and pray? Jesus, I'm lost without you. Jesus, I am empty without you. Jesus, I am nothing without you. I lay myself down before you. Jesus, I am lost, lost, so lost without you. I'm empty, Lord, without you. I am nothing without you. I lay everything down. Everything I've tried to become, everything I've tried to make, everything I've tried to earn, every step of the ladder I've tried to go up, I lay it before you. I count it as nothing compared to knowing you. Lord, I need you. I humble myself before you. I lay down, I lay down everything that I tend to cling to. God, we pray that you would tear down idols tonight, things that we idolize, even people and relationships that we idolize over you that you would humble us tonight, that we would realize the most important thing about us is not what we post on Instagram tomorrow. It's what we bring to you in prayer even now, meeting with you, hearing from you, drawing close to you. Jesus, be glorified in us, through us and over us. I'm nothing without you, Lord. I'm lost without you. I'm empty without you. Let's worship the Lord and draw close to him and humble ourselves tonight. Presence, heaven.
praise you, God. We bless you that even as we humble ourselves before you, that you're bringing a fresh revelation of Jesus. God, as we humble ourselves, then we're able to exalt you and to see you, that you are the wonderful one. You're the mighty one. There's none like you. We're nothing without you, but you are everything. So we surrender to you tonight. We humble ourselves before you tonight. We celebrate who you are tonight. Lord, open our eyes to get a fresh vision of Jesus, a fresh vision of the greatness and glory of God, a fresh vision of your presence and your power. We praise you. We bless you, Lord. You are great and mighty. Some of you that are here tonight, maybe you've, you've been trying to walk on a treadmill where you're trying to earn your way to God? Are you trying to work so hard? You're trying to balance all these different competing responsibilities. And in the middle of it, while you're trying to do all the right things, it feels like you're missing Jesus. You're missing Him. And I believe that He wants, what he wants us to know tonight that He's still the same place He was when we first met Him. He's in that place of humility where we say, Lord, I'm nothing without you. I'm lost without you. He's in that place where we met him and received him. He's with us, but he's rediscovered as we continue to humble ourselves and to repent of our pride. And Lord, we do that tonight because you have a way of showing us. The more we walk with you, you have a way of showing us things that are prideful that we do and say. And we're grateful that you convict us. I'm going to invite you to pray a simple prayer of repentance tonight. A fresh commitment to Jesus and walking with him in humility, with joy. 
Just repeat right after me, dear God, I'm nothing without you. You're my all in all. I pray that you would open my eyes to who you are. Forgive me of all the busy things I do and too often missing you. Help me to start with you. Help me to continue with you. Lord, help me to humble myself every day to not allow my world to get so full that I miss you. Bring me back to the cross, to that vertical and horizontal beam where heaven and earth intersect, where your purpose and plan comes into my world and came in such a humble way in a manger. Lord, there was a way in a manger. And it was the way of humility. It's the way I start with you, but it's the way I continue with you as well. So Lord, as I humble myself, I pray my vision of you would grow greater. That you'll give me a revelation of Jesus. Of his love for me and my family of his love for this church, of his love for this community, and of his power for whom nothing is too difficult. In Jesus' mighty name, fill me with your love. Fill me with your forgiveness. And help me to walk the walk of humility. I'm nothing without you. I'm lost without you. I am empty without you. In Jesus' name. Can we sing this again? And as we do, I encourage you as you humble yourself through this week, along with the humility, let the exaltation of God come. Lord, I'm nothing, but you are everything. I'm lost, but you know exactly where I'm to go. I'm empty, but you are the fullness of the Holy Spirit that fills everyone who humbles themselves before you. Let's worship him as we sing this once again. Yes, Jesus. Well, what a refreshing it is to be humble before God 
and to say, I'm nothing without you and I need you. And my hope and prayer for all of us this year is as we move from Thanksgiving into this Christmas season, that the Lord will give us a new lens as we look at Christmas, as we look at Jesus, as we look at the way God came. The way He came changes the way we live. The way He came changes the way we live. Let's live that life for Him in humility and watch Him reveal His glory. God bless you. Have a great week. Lord bless you this week.